not help their children. Um, but I wonder if it has to do with um, the question of like why? why? Why did it even happen in the first place? Why did they have to experience that? Where's the pride in surviving something as horrible as that, right? That's, you know, we when we tell stories to our children, we often tell, uh, we tell stories of hardships. We, we tell how we survived it and we endured through it. But if maybe there's a sense that it wasn't worth it, then it feels like a story that, that doesn't have a good ending or doesn't even have a moral to it. It's kind of senseless. Mm. Um, so I wonder if, if that's maybe where it's coming from and it maybe doesn't serve any real good to, to yeah. keep telling those kinds of stories. Wow. That's a very, that's a very uh, profound way of thinking about it, right? Is that, it's, is that you don't think of war as something which, which gets us to become Americans after it. You don't think about war as something which which you know we sacrifice so that we could move ahead politically or it's like our our trial by fire mm. many chamorros often think of the war as we suffered and that's our entrance into mm. american belonging mm -hmm. and so I, I you may have something there when you think people just say no it was bad mm -hmm. don't try to pretend that mm -hmm. sort of it was it was worth it because oftentimes when we especially for sometimes people who are who are very religious or who are very spiritual they think, no, don't think that bad things are good to justify mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Because then you think, because then you go down that path and you think, oh, it may have been bad, it may have been terrible, but it produced something good afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so, um, no, thank you for, for sharing, uh, for sharing that story. And do you want to kind of talk again about your survey? <laughs> and uh, we can put the link in the, we can uh, pink, put the link in the comments as well so that people can go right. to it. Yes, um, yes, so the survey, the survey is about um, uh, people's involvement in independent Guahan efforts, so including the podcast. If you're a person who watches the podcast often, um, you can take the survey. Uh, and it's a chance for you to um, talk about what it's like to do this kind of uh, activism through independent Guahan and also give some feedback um, because um, I, I think that, um, yeah, everyone who's involved has has maybe positive and, and maybe some negative experiences that I think the organization could use to, to grow and become stronger and to um, make people feel welcome and, and able and willing to contribute. So um, yes, please, please do the survey if you'd like. And um, the first 100 participants will get a, a coffee card. So um, just just follow the instructions on the online form and I'll find a way to, to mail it and give it to you. Again. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break. Do you know how to do this? Is it going to work? Sorry, we, we were practicing all these fancy things, which, which we take for granted nowadays. And so um, we will be coming back. We'll be talking to Victoria Leon Guerrero, uh, Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero. She will be sharing her own work, not just her family's experiences, but also the fact that she's interviewed many elders, many survivors, um, and even the... The book that you that you interviewed your grandma for, Victoria has been in heavily involved in the War uh, War Survivors Memorial Foundation and the publication of those books, and so um, she has a very good perspective on this. Siguenzama, do I need to continue to stall for time? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll be right back. Got 
Day. Welcome back. Part two, part hugwa of this Fanatsu, very special Reflections on Reoccupations episode. And I am proud to be here with my Mali, my co-chair for Independent Wahan. And uh, man, you have your resume is almost as long as Joseph Cameron's resume. <laughs> Anyways, that's a, that's, a Gav-Guam, that's a Gav-Guam joke because Joseph Cameron had an email with this many titles at the end of <laughs> of his at, at the end of his name after each email in extra large font oh, different colors <laughs> and so but um so cool. yeah <laughs> cuz mega bedanya he's done so Hungan. much but so i'm so glad that you are here to talk because um your creative work has dealt with the war um, your work with independent Guahan has dealt with uh, with war survivors and pushing for a more just form of war reparations than the one we currently have. And even going back to, I remember you talking to me about your time at PDN interviewing war survivors. And so um, there's just so many angles, so many ways at which you kind of come at this issue. And so um, first of all, though, do you want to share some of your family's war experiences? I'm actually named after my grandmother's sister who died during the war. Her name was Victoria, and she was four. And so my great-grandmother had asked my mom to name her first child, or her first daughter, Victoria. So um, just my namesake alone connects me to the war. 
Um, and my, my family history is interesting because my mom's family is from Totsu. And uh, for the most part, they were in Totsu for the war. And they would just, um, like, grow food and deliver food to the Japanese. There was a, a camp of Japanese doctors in the village that they would provide food for. And then my Nananbiha had a hotnu and was really famous for her bread. And so she provided bread both for the Japanese and then when the Americans returned, uh, she provided them with bread as well. And so a lot of her memories and their memories are centered around um, the hotnu. Um, and then, you know, uh, one of my grandmother's uh, brothers, my uncle Pipi, um, had been really malnourished during the war. And so he had a twin who died. And then he, like his growth was literally stunted. And so he had been in the hospital for about 10 years after the war. His legs stopped growing. And it was mostly because he was so young and he would have to walk every day back and forth to deliver the food to the Japanese um, and then the legacy of war has really impacted our family because our land in Totsu was where they buried a lot of the war waste. And so um, my family's property is a formerly used defense site. And so we're still, um, it hasn't entirely been cleaned up. And so that's also affected our family as well. Um, and then on my father's side, my, um, my grandfather is from Saipan. And he actually met my grandmother when he was brought to Guam as a police officer. He was a police officer in Saipan and under the Japanese administration and then was brought to Guam where he did meet my grandmother. Um, and, and then in Saipan too, he had a brother that had actually been killed by American shrapnel. So um, it really runs the gamut. And I remember once asking um, my my grandpa Dung, if you know he, what were his memories of the war, and he said that he really didn't want to talk about it because he was forced to do things beyond his will that he didn't want to do, and that you know a lot of people don't understand too that there were people that were brought from Saipan to Guam who didn't want to do the things that they were made to do, and that he had really um, felt terrible for the things that he had seen and been forced to do, and so. Um, it really shows, too, that there's a lot of sort of generalizations about the war um, and the relationship between Chamorros from Saipan and Guam, um, that when you actually talk to individual people, the stories vary. Like, I remember, for example, in, in your grandfather's war story, uh, there is like a villain from Saipan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and in his story, which was really interesting, um, it was because of this guy that he had to marry his first wife. Mm -hmm. So there was a Saipanese who was working for the Japanese who had liked a woman named Clitzhilde that um, your grandfather was just being a little Andy with. And then former governor Manny Guerrero uh, was uh, kind of encouraging him to be Andy with her. They were on their way to a baseball game. And then um, the Japanese or the Saipanese who had also liked the woman wanted to beat up your grandfather. And so then uh, Governor Guerrero said, uh, no, you can't, you can't have her, they're engaged. <laughs> and so <laughs> in order to see it through, he actually married his first wife uh, because of that. Mm -hmm. And so he particularly had interesting um, feelings about the role of people from Saipan working for the Japanese. It's, it's so funny because you telling that story, it's, it's always a good reminder that sometimes it's hard for Chamorros to to pass on stories in their family. Yeah. And so sometimes when when people say like, oh, my, my nana never wanted to talk about those things. But sometimes talking to somebody outside of the family mm -hmm. um, who's interested and who's very earnest and genuine, people will share with them. And so 
I remember that because that when you interviewed Grandpa and he gave you so much detail that he never gave me when I asked. Then I went back and I was like, "Hey, when Sangani see Victoria told Edzu, you told Victoria all those things. You never told me any of those things." But well, um, his story. Can I share the ending of the war? Yes. Yes. So, okay. No. So, so the other thing <laughs> that he had never shared with Maget, and I don't think anyone really in the family was why the first marriage ended, which is really, I mean, honestly, this is a novel in and of itself. But so Clotilde and he had two children during mm-hmm. the war, and the second child. So instead of going to Menengen, his family went to Mokfuk and hid in a hole in the jungle, and in a bokunguk and. Uh, she actually delivered the second child in the book. And then uh, it was long after July 21st, like maybe a month and a half had passed that they were living in this hole thinking, because they could still hear, you know, the uh, American troops had been kind of hunting for <clears throat> Japanese uh, scavengers, so to speak, or the stragglers, that's a better word. Uh, and so they could hear commotion and they could hear gunfire. So they thought that the war was still ongoing. So they really didn't come out of the hole. And then one day uh, the Marines were combing through the area and a group of Marines found your grandfather and his family, his young family, and then packed them in the back of a truck and brought them to the um, civilian camp in uh, in Hagatnya, really in Anigua, where the cemetery is, where Pico Cemetery is. And on the, well, first of all, on the way, they gave them milk and your grandfather, who had never really uh, liked milk, or and he really was just hungry and starving, drank the milk, so he was kanilak. By the time he got to Aganya, <laughs> he had diarrhea. And so he was like, why did they give us milk? And then, and then the, um, and so because he had been a federal employee before the war, uh, he was able to collect enough back pay after the war that he bought a car and started a taxi service. And so your, his grandfather was actually a blacksmith and their family was able to actually maintain uh, their trade during the war. Um, they were one of the few families that were allowed to still live in their home in, in Hagatnya because they were able to make tools that were needed for the war. And so on top of being a blacksmith, he... Um, he also worked a uh, regular eight to five and then at night <clears throat> drove a taxi service. So I imagine poor Clotilde must have been very lonely. And so they lived in the basement of his father's house. Right. And so one day he had gone on his taxi service. There weren't that many people uh, getting the taxi. And so then he he decided to go home. And when he went downstairs, he found Clotilde with the Marine who had rescued them in the Bokunguk. And he said he left and never looked back. And so it's just the irony and all the metaphor in this story. The guy that gave him Kinilak stole his wife. <laughs> um, and I don't know, because he also was interesting because he told me all of this, which was so amazing. And then uh, we had a public telling. So this is something interesting from what Cameron was talking about. We had a public storytelling event. Um, one of the things, so, so Miguel and I are board members for the Guamar Survivors Memorial Foundation, um, and we have done a trilogy of books mm-hmm. about the war that are f- focused solely on the story of the survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and a large role of the War Survivors Memorial Foundation has really been to reframe the telling of the war, not yes. victimizing our people or over-glorifying liberation, but rather really looking at the ways in which our people survive because of their own will, their own ingenuity. Um, They even return to many of the um, customs of their ancestors Mm -hmm. in order to survive the war and that they had all sort of the the skills and the resources necessary to sort of pull them through um, and support thousands of Japanese who were on the island uh, with no imports or exports coming in and out of the island. 
And so we really wanted to reframe it. Um, and so we started by kind of telling the stories of those who had testified before the War Claims Review Commission and ran as uh, articles in the Marianas mm-hmm. Variety. Mm-hmm. And then um, it just, the, the more that we documented stories, the more survivors had wanted to share. And so that's how it kind of evolved into this trilogy of books. Um, we also felt that it was important to commemorate the war from the beginning so for so long Mm -hmm. a lot of the war memories are told or shared at liberation day as you mentioned earlier but very rarely do we as a community think about december 8th as a day in which we need to reflect um exactly what was brought up earlier why and how did guam get dragged into war and so on a on the first december 8th that we kind of had we had a mass and and we invited all the survivors and then afterwards at the cathedral's museum we had a storytelling Mm -hmm. and i remember that uh your grandfather had shared with me and this is one of my favorite things that we always laugh about so he had shared in the the time when i interviewed him about how uh his little sister margarita right (laughs) had uh had a japanese general had taken a liking to her Mm -hmm. because she reminded him of his daughter because one day she was sitting on the stoop of their house reading a, a little children's book that his daughter read. And he had been a Japanese man who had been educated in America, was fluent in English, and was taken and, and made and appointed to be a general in the Japanese army and, or Imperial Army and came to Guam. And so when he told me, it was very clear that his, his, uh, his affection for Margarita was because she was a little girl like his daughter. But when he retold the story at the museum, all of a sudden, it seemed to be like a romantic situation. Oh, yeah, it was, I think it was because Grandpa was nervous. Yeah, <laughs> it was so sweet. He was like replaying their conversation. He goes, what is that there <laughs> that you're reading? This fine piece of literature. <laughs> <laughs> and the Japanese general is like suddenly very formal in English. And, uh, and so anyways, and so he had said it was actually because of Margarita, who I believe became a nun. Hongan that their, your family was also able to still stay in the house and not be bothered by the Japanese. Oh, so. no, very true, very yeah. true. And, and so you can, you can see Victoria has talked to, to hundreds of war survivors and their families. And so, um, and so how do you kind of um, put these stories that you've gathered into your, into your work, into your writing, into the things that you do? So Because we're always reminded around this time that we need to sort of learn from the past learn that history but then a lot of people think or assert that that means that we don't ask questions we Mm -hmm. just kind of shut up and wave the american flag but you have talked to so many of those who are quote-unquote liberated how do you bring their experiences into sort of politics today or our struggle today well so you know i began i guess collecting or just receiving war stories when i was uh, 18 i was an intern at the pacific daily news and I had done a Today in History of the Last Eight Days of the War. So I had interviewed um, people connected to all the massacres that happened in the last eight days of the war, which includes Hinta and Faha and Fena, um, but also um, Menangan survivors. And so being only 18 and kind of uh, being immersed in that part of the war was really intense. Um, and I had always been a little bit more conscious as a teenager. I was always asking questions. I really loved to read. I had been introduced to the mark as a student at GW. Um, and at the time too, there was supposed to be a plebiscite in 2000, which right. is the year That's I graduated. Right. So I was kind of aware um, 
of, you know, sort of the political relationship between Guam and the United States not being a good one. Um, but it really hit home for me when I did those interviews. Um, and I remember because I did the interviews, but I also was digging through photos, both at the War in the Pacific's collection, the Hagatnia Library, and, and at the Mark here at the University of Guam. And I saw like pictures of dead bodies and I saw just all of what the island looked like, all the devastation of the bombardment. And I didn't walk away from the, you know, you would think walking away from an experience where you're learning about all these atrocities committed by another country that I would have been like, I'm joining the military tomorrow. But it actually had the very opposite impact on me. Um, by that time, and now this is 20 years ago for me, um, but by that time, the survivors I was interviewing, they were mostly in their late teens uh, to mid-30s during the war. So they were much older. And so they were at a point in their life where they were reflecting back in a way in which they had more perspective to see that um, the relationship with the U.S. was flawed um, and that sort of what they had gone through in the war was something that made them more critical of the United States as elders. Maybe when they were younger, it was just sort of, it was sort of surviving. Um, but I, I heard a lot of that critical rhetoric even then, even in 2000 when I was doing these interviews. And I really felt, I remember one day after interviewing Buck Cruz in Manila about his father's murder at um, Tinta and um, kind of driving back from Malasu to PDN and sort of visually seeing what the island was like. And then, you know, Mayor Cruz, he was mayor then, was very emotional and he had been crying during the interview and I had to like be the good reporter and sort of not show my emotion. And I remember coming back to the newsroom and um, Jojo Santa Tomas, who was one of my mentors in the newsroom, I just like sat in my chair and then I just started weeping. And I was like, wow, it was really heavy to be that young and hearing these really gory things. And, um, and then I left for college. And so it was really formative for me because that really sort of catapulted my activism, my questioning, my desire even in college to tell our story because I felt like we'd always been told the story of liberation, but not really the story of uh, our own people's struggles, triumphs, and sort of reflections looking back. Um, and then kind of, you know, fast forwarding to today, a lot of the, the survivors I've interviewed in the last 10 years were children. So their perspective is very different because they were so young. Many of their war memories are actually shaped by the rhetoric of liberation that's very happened true. since the war. Very true. And so um, I, I think because I've had the, the privilege, really, of having so many people trust me with their story, I have this ability to kind of see and fill in the gaps from certain interviews to others. I've also interviewed several people, for example, who all watched the same beheading at Ta'i, but from different angles. Um, and that power of like saying like, oh my gosh, they were in the same place. Or something as simple as like uh, why kids were collecting flies. So to one <laughs> elder, she, the, there was a fly eradication uh, program that the youngest, everybody in the war was made to work, even the youngest children. And so the kids had to go around with jars and catch flies. And so I remember one elder saying that to this day she won't eat soy sauce because she thought they were smashing it to make soy sauce. But then I remember Gloria Nelson thinking it was really fun. She, mm -hmm. Gloria Nelson was like eight or nine in the war, and she had even been reluctant to share her story because she had said, 
you know, I don't have one of those depressing stories. I'm not going to sit around and cry. The war was actually kind of fun for me because I was a kid. And I had fun running around trying to catch flies. And I thought some of the Japanese soldiers were very handsome, you know. So, And the Americans, when they came, were very pink. And it was really funny just knowing she was just very honest. And, and she goes, I don't think this is the story you want to hear. And I mm. said, you know, actually, yes, it's okay, you know. But she had only known the media to portray the real gory or sad or emotional stories. And so I think, like, you're going back to your question, a lot of what I've been inspired by has been just how do we do justice to this story and its complexity and not just kind of telling the story everyone wants to hear and actually uh, for my master's program I wrote it my thesis was a novel mm -hmm. and so in the opening to my novel I actually have the narrator saying that like this may not be the story you want to hear um, my life the, mo the most horrible things to me didn't happen during the war it happened right after mm -hmm. right and so um, we look a lot at that period, like you said, it ends in Liberation Day, but actually it was very hard for people in the months following who were still living in camps, who never were able to return to their lands. Yes, the, year, the years following. The years, absolutely. And I would argue to this day that like the legacy of that war has really hindered our political growth because... For many decades, there was this sense of obligation and that, you know, sort of fighting for self-determination uh, was was ungrateful to the United States for having liberated us from the Japanese is something that I hear often. And I hear that most from the generation of children born in the years after the war. So people born in the late 40s, early 50s, who joined the military in large numbers and who felt that for their parents or their loved ones who suffered, they had to always be patriotic, loyal Americans. Um, and then sort of as the generations come uh, and we become a little bit more conscious, it's so interesting how the younger generation um, has these the ability now to talk to their grandparents or great-grandparents, and their great-grandparents are saying, no, you know, Guam deserves more sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Guam deserves more voice. You know, I didn't suffer for us to never get our lands back. I didn't mm -hmm. suffer. And you see this right after the war when we read like the Guam Congress uh, transcripts where you, you saw even a year or two after the war, you see these testimonies where you're saying, you took our best land. You're leaving us with land we can't even farm. You're mm -hmm. telling us we have to work. Our entire livelihood has changed what this isn't liberation, right? This isn't right. So um, I think for me, a lot of that comes through in my, in my art and in my work and in my passion for justice for our people. No, we can definitely see that. I mean, one of the things that I was very happy that you spearheaded in independent Guahan was the Azure Imanyanata. And so we should definitely kind of talk about that too, because uh, especially, you know, just to kind of, um, what is it they say in English? Toot your horn, toot independent Guahans, or <laughs> Guayfi independent Guahans kulu. Um, just because it was something where it's it, you would consider it outside of what a, a group of people committed to decolonization would normally do, but mm. our group took it on um, and really felt felt it was important. And so, do you want to share a little bit about about sort of sure. that? Sure. I mean, I think initially um, it was an interesting dilemma for us because we are and have been very critical of the manner in which we are paying reparations. So ultimately, the government of Guam is paying our war reparations because the government of Guam is owed money, uh, taxes that are collection, co their section 30 taxes that are collected from U.S. military personnel and contractors 
uh, that go back to the government for sort of the strain on our infrastructure of hosting such a large military presence. And that's money that goes towards our general appropriations. It's money that we need every year. Um, but the only way that Congresswoman Berdalio could really get the federal government to pay reparations is if they weren't really paying it themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we were told initially that it was a placeholder, meaning uh, they just wanted the bill to pass and that later they would find another funding source. Well, of course, we knew that Congress would never give in to another funding source. And um, I think that's a whole other Fanatsu episode. And I think mm -hmm. we've done one before we did a teaching we, on we this. Did. But it's a, it's a whole hour long history, at least, to really explain. But in a nutshell, we felt it was very wrong for our people to be made to pay for our own reparations because reparations are a way in which a government acknowledges their wrongdoing. And so we now are paying for the crime of another government's war, really. Um, and so, but at the same time, we were while we were critical of it, we also saw very quickly that the claims process, so that the amount of time our elders had to file claims was one year. There wasn't a local office set up. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a local campaign to go village to village to say, here are the forms, here's how you fill them out. Um, there weren't even town hall meetings necessarily where, where family members and survivors could ask the congresswoman or the, the foreign claims review settlement commission that's reviewing all of the claims. Well, how do I fill these form forms out? Where do I get these forms? It was all online and it was all very, um, it wasn't accessible. It wasn't easy. The forms weren't easy to navigate. Um, and I had started just because people that I'd interviewed started calling me like, hey, girl, do you know how I can fill out this form? Uh, my loved ones, my grandmother's siblings asked me to help them fill out their form. Or mostly it was, remember when I told you that story, do you still have it? Mm. Um, or children of people I'd interviewed who have since died said, hey, do you still have my mom or dad's story? Um, can we turn it in as a claim? Mm. And so that's how it kind of started for me. And then I realized really quickly that the form was really complicated, um, that people were not really figuring, that it needed help, it, that people needed help. Um, it also required notarizing it. There were also strict rules. So if your loved one had died before the enactment of the law um, in on December 23rd, 2016, you were not eligible. Mm -hmm. And most people that I'd interviewed, for example, had died, so they were ineligible. Um, and so uh, Independent Guahan, we were talking about, like, we really need to do something to help them. So even if we don't agree with the method of payment, we can agree that our, our elders deserve any kind of justice they can get from this situation. Um, and, and nobody's really sort of taking that initiative. And so we held two events called Azuda Imanyanatsa, which means to help our elders. And um, the first event, we had over 100 uh, claims that we filled out. The second event, we had about 80 um, and we, we did them here at the University of Guam. We had tremendous support from community volunteers. At the second event, the Public Defender's Office, who also provides notary services, came to notarize. Mm -hmm. um, other notary publics came the first time, too, to provide free services, and then the Public Defender's Office was so awesome. So we uh, provided training sessions for our volunteers where we trained them in how to fill out the forms, and so the Public Defender's Office sent actual attorneys and staff 
who were trained and then uh, they took on the task of helping people who were bedridden. So they would send people that were trained to fill out the forms and notary publics to people's homes to fill out their forms. I know you and I visited several yes. homes. <laughs> uh, my grandmother's brother on his deathbed just a few days before he passed away, I filled out his form and I brought a notary public to his house. So it was literally something um, that was necessary and that I, I just feel this process is so isolating, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this office in Washington, D.C., who, who's just like, okay, the form's online, figure it out. Um, but the reality is that the demographic of people that are expected to fill out these forms really needed a lot more. No, so true. I mean, I, I really liked it. I really liked undertaking that because for all of the ways in which people say that we're taimamalau mm -hmm. or that we don't have a sense of history it's kind of like no we we actually have learned the history very well yeah. we have sort of we've we've spent the time with people talking to them spent it at their kitchen tables eating whatever food they offer us in their outside kitchens at their ranches we've talked to them we've listened to them we've spent a good amount of time and and so it was it was nice to see sort of that the respect that our group has for elders and their stories that it manifested where we were like, we have to do something. We have to help them. Yeah. yeah. And what was really awesome, I think, too, is that the volunteers were like high school and college mm -hmm. students who were learning these stories. Um, I, I wanted to make sure the forms were filled out well before we submitted. Or, you know, basically they had to mail it because they had to have it certified. But we photocopied them. And I remember, like, going home after these long days of filling out forms and then reading through all of them just to make sure there weren't errors and then calling the family members if there were. So I actually had gone through all of these forms. And it's so rich with story. Um, and I, I, I know that I read somewhere in all the readings I've done and understanding the process that I believe all of the claims will be made public um, or will become public documents. And so I really hope that something is done with the stories, too. Um, in the legislation and the enabling legislation for the claims process, there is a grant uh, fund established uh, five million dollars a year starting when the law was enacted uh, towards documenting war mm -hmm. stories um, and so uh, recently the governor uh, the mayor's council and speaker Tina Munya Barnes uh, has written to uh, Congressman Nicholas saying okay we need to uh, have this fund because it's it's there it's authorized but it's not appropriated so they would need to appropriate the funds to Department of Interior and so uh, Norma Affligui who's uh, really instrumental in uh, in the Guamar Survivors Memorial Foundation and documenting these stories and really driving the work of the foundation uh, she and I had uh, kind of been brainstorming uh, months ago about well what could we do if we were able you know she was thinking there has to be a place where survivors today can just come like a resource center and they can tell their stories or their loved ones can come and search a database for anything that's ever been written about their loved one or these war claims that were collected can be accessed and read by the community and I said well Norma there's money in the law five million a year that could easily support a resource center um, you know, the mark has an extensive collection of war stories, whether they've been documented in newspapers or collected by Senator Cecilia Bamba. Mm -hmm. All of these things are in the mark. I know the Ganya Library has a bunch of stuff, too. And so what wouldn't it be amazing to digitize all this and create a resource center where people can come to learn, um, you know, similar to the Holocaust Museum, like actually having a space in our community where these, ref you know, these reflections, these stories are mm -hmm. housed. 
Um, so I hope that St. Nicholas will, will actually introduce legislation to get that authorized and that our government will work together towards something like a resource center. I mean, $5 million a year is a lot of money that can go into book projects. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking with uh, Chief of Staff Tony Babauta about it, and he had said even like towards artistic projects like theater, oh, uh, art shows. Absolutely. So there's so much you could do um, to keep telling this story. Absolutely. And so Sidus uh, Masi Victoria... For all of for all of this, all that you do, but yeah, let's uh, let's challenge. We know that Mike San Nicolas, the delegate, he watches Fanatsu. Oh, Biba, half a day. Now there's another Mike San Nicolas. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not the I delegate would hope that he would, who watches. Though. I mean, you know, <laughs> he he's like he's he's, he's not he's, a patron. No. Oh. But I remember I once. I challenge Congressman Mike San Nicolas to be a patron of Independent Guahans Fanatsu podcast and to kindly tune in. Um, the people that speak in this program are, you know, mm -hmm. educators in our community, scholars in our community um, who would love to have your ear. And we would love to always know that you're tuning in because these are issues that can really be advocated for in Congress. Biba. So please be a patron. Yeah. Anyone Sid that knows him, tag him. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I can talk forever about no. <laughs> World War II. No, no, no. Bonito. And so let's let's take a quick break. Okay. okay and then we will have... Again. <laughs> back and so um dispensers we've gone way over time and so uh we won't be talking to uh we won't be talking to manny cruz today unfortunately 
He's, he's, uh, he's, his bags are packed and he's ready to go. Uh, he's standing there right by the door. <laughs> he hates to wake us up to say goodbye. But um, I wanted to read some of the comments that we've had uh, during today's uh, broadcast. And thank everyone for tuning in. Um, Alyssa Eclavea wanted to share some of her experiences with her family during World War II. She says, my grandmother was very skeptical on doing any interviews about her experiences with the war. She mentioned that America left Guam without giving any warning that the Japanese were coming. And then when the Americans came back, the Chamorros were grateful, almost in a way forgiving the U.S. for abandoning them because they saved us. And then Michael Mendiola Garcia, who is our super, super patron, super viewer, he says that my grandfather was eight years old when the, Ameri when the Americans came. He has many memories, but one that sticks out is that he was in school learning Japanese with other Chamorros. He said that when the bombing started, when the Americans got there, he and other children ran out of the school. In the chaos of the bombings, he and his sister ran into each other, and she has a scar on his head from running into each other. <laughs> he took his younger sister, and they found shelter in a ditch. And he says that his, uh, his grandfather says that most of the violence and chaos, it, it started happening once the Americans started bombing the island. And then we also have somebody who's expressing solidarity from Hawaii. Uh, Ikaika Bishop says that Guam and Hawaii have similar pasts, uh, similar pasts and similar present, and referring to how that people in Manokea are fighting uh, and protesting there right now. And so Sidus uh, Masi and uh, Andre Bainham also commented. Uh, he had a comment uh, asking about Puerto Rico and the and the relationship to the United States. And Andre, thank you for following. We'll definitely tackle that in a future uh, episode. So keep watching. Um, and so Sidus Masi to everyone for tuning in. Uh, stay safe this Liberation Day. Stay dry if you can. It's probably going to rain a lot. Um, but yeah, always always remember. Whatever we understand about our past, how much we investigate and understand our past, and our past in, in complexity. From what we've learned today, we always have to remember that if, we, if the past is too simplistic in a sense where it leads people to just say, this is this, then it's not really history. It's probably some type of propaganda, really. The Chamorro experience is complicated. Everybody suffered. Some people suffered more than others. Um, but that does not mean then that when the Americans returned, everything was better and easy. We need to remember that the experiences, so as I've said previously on the show, how we frame the war, where we decide it begins, where we decide it ends, um, it says a lot about how we commemorate it. So if we don't take into account how the United States didn't prepare the people of Guam or didn't even notify them, that war was coming, but chose to sort of keep it to themselves and just let chaos spread, what does that mean? What does that mean for us in terms of understanding our place today, Chamorros then and our, and, and our place today? And when we think that the liberation happened, but then it actually led to Chamorros being very confused and even more traumatized in certain ways because thousands of families were evicted from their land after liberation and that most of the evictions happened years after the war had ended, but America was still justifying that they needed more land to protect the world, defend freedom for their own interests. 
And so always remember, liberation, if we want to call it that, what does liberation mean? Can you and should you celebrate liberation while you still remain a colony? Is it a good idea? I would argue it's not. But for all of you out there, you should definitely educate yourself. It's, you should talk to your elders and you should listen to them because what we've seen today is that the past is very complicated. And if we really want to know where, where we are in the world today and where we should head next, then we should really get into those complications. And so, Sidus Masi, remember, sign up as a patron through Patreon. Um, after every show, we record the Secret Guam History podcast. We record other goodies. And so you can only get access to that um, by signing up as a Patreon. So, Sidus Masi, adios, estakit.